Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You guys ready to dig into God's word? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we're so thankful that we have this time that we can come together and we want you to speak to us. We're going to your word. And so we want all the distractions to be gone. We want the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that's reveal truth to us. So God, I pray that it would not be me, but you speak through me today as I am committing myself to your text. And we pray for life transformation in Jesus name. Amen. So. Tiffany read a text, and what we're encountering in these 10 verses is the very first miracle in the book of Acts performed by the apostles. So Luke gives us a summary of the life of the early church. Remember, remember he's already told us in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, that awe came upon every soul after the events of Pentecost. And in the days that followed, he says, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And we have, we have no record of all the things, all the wonders and signs that were done in that, that opening period, but we do have this one. We have this one, the story of the lame man who was healed at a uh, beautiful gate uh, of the temple. And we know that Luke has chosen this one from a number of miracles, but he chose this one. Remember, Luke is being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he, and he chose this miracle in order that it might teach us something very significant. So it's important that we unpack it a little bit. And just to kind of give you a preview of what we'll do, because we're talking about something so deep, we're going to talk about uh, the miraculous power of God, and we're going to talk about supernatural healing. I'm probably going to take this week and cover the text, and next week I'm going to go in a little deeper, and we're going to talk about healing both physically and then, of course, spiritually. We're going to talk about that. And then you're, you'll be proud of me. This, this year, everybody says, Pastor Justin, why do you preach different on Easter? Why don't you organize your, your text so that when you come to Easter, you can continue to preach through the, the, the book of the Bible that you're preaching? Well, that, that's difficult because Easter is a real special <laughs> 
special service and we want to preach on the power of the resurrection. But you will be proud of your pastor because that is what I did this year. So we actually are staying in the book of Acts and on Easter Sunday we'll be jumping in to the sermon part of Acts chapter 3. So I'm really excited. Invite your friends. And just like the announcement said, it's baptism Sunday. If you have not been baptized, if you have not been water baptized, get water baptized. Sign up today. Sign. I'll allow you to do it right now. You can pull out your phone sign up to be water baptized okay if you haven't done that before and invite your friends and then next week is the grand opening of our family center we're going to celebrate the goodness of God and we're going to celebrate the future all the kids that are going to be discipled in that family center encounter Jesus encountering the Holy Spirit that's something we're celebrating so next week that's what we're doing all kinds of good things coming down coming down the road All right, so again, we're looking at the first described recorded miracle and just a word about miracles, okay? Because miracles, we we hear the word miracle all the time. It's such an overused word sometimes, right? I mean, I fear some of us are just probably way too generous with the word miracle. The Bengals made it to the Super Bowl last year. That was a miracle. No, it wasn't a miracle. Well, (laughs) Wasn't a miracle. Me graduating from high school, my English teacher said, that's a miracle. She was mean. That wasn't a miracle. Maybe a surprise, but not a miracle, right? Miracles aren't something that happen every day. It's a part of natural law. Miracles different from something that would be awesome or incredible. And we probably even overuse that word. We overuse a lot of words in the English language today. And what I want to do right now is just take a, a little minute because nobody explains this whole concept or this idea, idea better than Tim Hawkins. So would you just focus on the screen just for a little minute and we're going to watch a, a brief clip. That's unbelievable. We overuse that word, unbelievable, don't we? I was eating some deer sausage with my buddy. He's like, man, this deer sausage is unbelievable. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Just say it. It's just a good piece of deer sausage, man. It's not unbelievable. Now, if a bald eagle wearing a tuxedo flew down and dropped some deer sausage in your mouth, yeah, that's unbelievable right there. I'll give you that. That is unbelievable. Because that's a bald eagle wearing a tux, dropping sausage in your mouth. You don't see something like that every day. We overuse this phrase the most. That's the worst. You ever heard people say that? That's the worst. That's the worst. Really? That's the worst. That is the worst. My wife and I dropped our daughter off at the mall not too long ago. She was there to meet her friends, and her friends weren't there yet. My daughter was distraught. She was like, oh, my friends. My friend. That's not how she talks, but it's really funny. My friend, my friend. <laughs> my friends aren't here. My friends aren't here yet. Now I can't go shopping. I have to wait for them until I get here, so I can't go shopping. And my wife is like, I know, honey. That's the worst. Really? That's the worst? Being stuck in the mountains or being lost, you know, out out at sea with sharks circling around you? You're not in more of a pickle there? That's the worst. 
I love Tim Hawkins. He says it better than I could, but we overuse words all the time, don't we? And miracle sometimes is a word that we constantly overuse. Listen, a miracle is humanly impossible, but divinely effortless, right? We have natural laws and we have natural order. A miracle is when God decides to supersede natural law with his own law, which for him is really easy. We understand there's a principle. We work on the principles of laws that supersede other laws, right? I mean, think about it. For example, think of the law of gravity. If I drop something right now, it's going to hit the ground. If I took a ball and I dropped it, it's going to drop and it's going hit to the, hit the ground. Two weeks ago, I boarded a plane at the airport, and that plane lifted off from the ground, flew in the air, and landed in the country of El Salvador. It carried me all the way to El Salvador from Cincinnati. And I remember when our family moved to India, we boarded the biggest plane I've ever seen in my life. It was a Boeing 787 Dreamliner jet. This thing was huge. It sat 318 passengers, and listen to this. It weighed over 500,000 pounds. I mean, this is gigantic. And when I look at that plane, I think, how in the world does something like that take off from the ground and fly in the air? Because gravity would say it ain't going anywhere, right? And yet the law of physics says different. And someone who understands physics would say, well, it's pretty basic. Now, I, didn't, I got a D in physics, so it's not basic for me. But you just, you just get the other natural laws to supersede the law of gravity. So the law of aerodynamics, the law of propulsion. You get, you get those together in the right form, and you can get something like a Bow, Boeing 7. Uh, 87 Dreamliner off the ground and gliding through the sky. So certain laws in combination can supersede other natural laws. Now, a miracle is when God enacts supernatural law in the midst of a natural world. Physical healing is a supernatural miracle. And physical healing appears all throughout the book of Acts. Uh, In fact, 14 times it appears in the book of Acts. In 12 of 28 chapters, we read about physical healing. And some scholars will say this about Acts chapter 3 and the miracle that we're looking at today. If you understand this miracle, in a way you understand them all. This miracle shows you how, how God feels about suffering. You ever hear that from someone who doesn't want to believe in God or follow his word? Your God doesn't, there's so much suffering in the world. How can you believe in a God? Well, this miracle shows you how God really feels about suffering, suffering in the world and what, he's gonna, and what he's doing about it. Not what he's going to do, but what he's doing now about it and what he's saying to us in that suffering. And it shows us, us being the church, what our mission is as the church in this world. Many people ask, well, what is the church? And we've talked, you've heard me talk about it a lot from the pulpit. I believe that's the wrong question, not what is the church, because the Bible uses the word to describe a group of people, not a gathering, not an event. So we, we really should be asking who, not what, who is the church? And the church is the regenerate people of God, saved by the power of God for the purpose of God in this world. You know what that means? We don't stop being the church when we walk out of the building on Sunday morning. You hear me? Instead, everything we do, we do as the church of Jesus Christ for the fame of Jesus Christ, and we do it everywhere. That's the church. We don't need a building to be the church. We go. We we are the church. That's why every Sunday I'm going to start saying, go be the church. 
Ministry, the best ministry doesn't take place in the church on Sunday. The best ministry takes place outside those doors Monday through Friday. The greatest, uh, the greatest harm that we've done to the Western church today is creating superstars in our ministers. Those that get up on stage and preach and teach, we've created, we, we draw a line in the sand, we make them out to be these superstars. That is what ministry is. That's, that, this is a form of ministry, but the best ministry takes place out there. Everybody's called. You put your faith in Jesus, you have purpose. Your life is on mission, right? So as we're reading this text, God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. You are going to fulfill God's mission. The church should be a movement gathered around a mission. That's everyone, and I mean everyone, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ and their Lord and Savior are on mission. You have purpose. And some of you are already saying, yeah, but Pastor Justin, I get it. I'm, I'm a part of the church. I'm on mission. But these guys in this text, these guys that we're reading about, they're the apostles. And I would say, yeah, they are. These, these men were chosen by God for a very unique purpose. There's no apostolic succession in the New Testament. Okay, but there are apostles in, in, in the sense that there are still those who are sent, right? And all of us who put our faith in Jesus, we have, we have this purpose and this mission. I mean, listen to the words of Jesus. And this was, just, this was not just for the apostles, but in Mark 16, 17 through 18, this is what Jesus says. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Do you believe? I believe. So these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. You see, Jesus is going to continue his ministry on earth. He's going to do it through the church. And the church is going to do it because they are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross in place for our sins. Three days later, he was healed. His broken body was healed. His dead body was resurrected. Over the course of 40 days, he went all over the place, letting everybody know that he had beat and defeated death. And then he went back into heaven. And then the question is, what do we do now that Jesus is gone? When he was here, we could walk up to him, we could ask him questions. If we, we were sick, we could go to him and we could ask him for healing. But now that he's left, what, is, what does that mean for us? How are we going to do the ministry now that Jesus is gone? As Jesus has left us. Are we alone? How do we, how do we talk to Jesus now? What do we do when we mess up? How are people going to get healed now that Jesus is gone? How is Jesus going to have a relationship with us now? Through the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. The Holy Spirit, I hope you're getting this. The Holy Spirit is sent to connect Jesus' people to Jesus so that we could still talk to Jesus as if he were here among us, that we could still inquire of Jesus for healing as if he were still present as when he walked on earth. You get that? The Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus so we can be the church. We can be the church. So look with me, verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So it says the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. That's what the ninth hour is. You see, the Jews had set times of prayer, morning, afternoon, and evening. 
And uh, that's why in Psalms 55, David said, evening, morning, and noon, I will cry aloud unto you. That's why in Daniel chapter 6, after the decree was that nobody could pray to any other god in the kingdom except for the king of Babylon, it says that Daniel went up to the upper room, opened his windows towards Jerusalem, and did what? He prayed three times that day, as was his custom. Okay, so as a Jewish man, he prayed towards Jerusalem in the morning, at noon, and in the evening time. And so Peter and John, they're going to pray at 3 p.m. And I, I, here's what you need to know, that the afternoon prayer would have been kind of like our Sunday morning service. So three times of set prayer times for the Jews, and this was the busiest. It was the most convenient for most people at that time because they got up early, they worked, they would have been done by the afternoon, and this was always the most attended uh, time of prayer. Now, what's also interesting is that at 2.30 in the afternoon, the evening sacrifices would have been offered. And I find it interesting that in this text, Peter and John don't go do that. They're going for the time of prayer. See, uh, it would have been after the sacrifices that when all the smoke of the sacrifice was ascending up into heaven, uh, then it would have been the hour of prayer and the people would stand there and they would praise the Lord and they would pray to God. And as they're doing that, the smoke of the sacrifices would ascend up to heaven. And Peter and John didn't go to participate in the sacrifice. I find that interesting, that they're going at 3 and not 2.30. Maybe it's because they knew that it wasn't needed anymore. The sacrifice of Jesus is now enough, and they get it. They understand it. So they waited for the hour of prayer, and, and then they went into the temple. I want you to get this. The first characteristic of these men is that they were men of prayer, right? It's so important that we be men and women who pray. We talk about it all the time. Prayer is not just what fuels the ministry. It is the ministry. And it's so, prayer is all throughout the Bible, and yet it's one of the most neglected practices in the church. And I told you one of the biggest convictions I had when I was at Central Bible College is to read the minutes of the early general councils. The first few general councils where all the Assemblies of God ministers would come and meet, boy, they spent a lot of time in prayer. We don't do that as much anymore. Prayer is just something that is neglected more and more in the church today. And, and prayer needs to be a regular aspect of our walk with God. Now, we have informal times where we simply call out to God, but we also have established times when we pray corporately. Luke 18.1, it tells us to always pray and not lose heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. We're supposed to be men and women who pray. We're supposed to be people who pray. And notice this, too. I love this. Peter and John, they're such different personalities. It's what I love about the Bible. It does not hide the fact. It doesn't hide the personalities of the characters. These two guys are totally, totally different. In fact, Peter was a doer and John was a dreamer. Now, when we were little, I was told uh, by a lot of different, my brother and I grew up as pastor's kids, and so we had people in the church who always called us Peter and John. And they'd always say, Justin's Peter and Jordan's John, because Jordan was the thinker. He would think before he did anything, and I was just the doer. I would do something before I would think. And as a little kid, I always took a, that as a compliment. It wasn't until I got older I realized they weren't complimenting me. It was, they were complimenting Jordan. But, you know, Peter was a leader, and God used him, so there. But, you know, Peter was a doer. John was a, a dreamer, and Peter always translated everything into activity, and I, I love that the Bible doesn't hide their personalities. Here's the thing. No matter how different they are, um, they were made one in, Jesus, in Christ. And we see that here. This is the way it needs to be. Jesus is the common ground for all of us. Yeah, we might have different personalities, 
but there needs to be a unity that can only happen in Jesus. That's the beautiful thing of the church. It's the beauty of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit can bring all of us together from different walks of life with different personalities, and we have one thing in common, Jesus Christ. That's the way it should be. And we see this here in this text. Their fellowship, it's built on their mutual love of Jesus. And here's what you need to, you need to know if you want God to use you. Are you ready? Cultivate relationships that build you in your walk. Okay? Cultivate relationships that build you in your walk. And a good place to, to do that is right here in the church. Look around you. This is a good place to cultivate and build relationships. It's like Amos 3.3 says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. You want to build relationships with other people that are going to cultivate your walk with the Lord. And here's something else that's noteworthy. This is important. It was prayer that became the pathway to opportunity. It was prayer that became the pathway to opportunity here. Look at verse 2. It says, A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now you need to know the temple, was, the temple complex was massive at this time in the first century. There was an outer court where the Gentiles would have been able to hang out, and then there were the inner courts. Uh, the gate on the eastern side was often called the Nankinor Gate. Isn't that a fun word, Nankinor? It sounds like I'm speaking Klingon. But it also had a nickname. It was the Beautiful Gate. And, and like I said, it was massive, 75 feet high, 35 feet wide, and it's covered in Corinthian bronze. And I think we have a picture. It's hard to see on the two screens, but you can see there the... the uh, the beautiful gate, Nicanor Gate, is right there. It was huge, and that's where they would have placed this guy. Um, and, and like I said, just like on a Sunday morning, we've got two entrances here into this sanctuary. Well, really, we have four, but nobody knows about this. Is there like a hidden secret that we don't like to tell? We, but we got these two entrances back here, and around, I wish I could say at 1030, everybody starts to funnel through, because that's what time the service starts. But at our church, it's more like at 1045, those, those get really busy and people start coming in and finding their seats. Now, we've got ushers at each of those entrances and we're hoping that an usher greets you. So anybody who's coming in is going to get greeted by an usher. And you can understand they had one entrance and you can understand why, why this beggar would want to be placed here. He's going to get to see everybody. You know, he, he chose this location because he's going to be seen by everybody that walks through. But not only that, but in the Jewish tradition, one of their acts of righteousness was almsgiving or giving to the poor. So what better place to sit than while people are going in and out of the temple and they're supposed to be giving to the poor. He is a good strategist, man. He has put himself in a good situation. He is in a good place and he knew it. The other thing about this man is he was lame from birth. He was born into a certain condition, and because of that, he wasn't able to live a life that most people lived. He was, he, it was a very abnormal life that he lived. He was never capable of standing up on his own two feet. He literally had never taken a step. His entire life, he had to watch other people do what he could not do. As a child, he would have had to watch all the other children playing the games and doing the things that he couldn't do. He never got to play tag. He never got to play chase a girl around the recess field. Did you still do that? I did that. I don't know if anybody else does it. Liam does it. <laughs> never got to climb trees. He, he could never do any of that stuff. But it, but it doesn't just stop there, not just games that he's not able to do. He probably won't ever marry because he will have absolutely no way of providing for a wife. 
So if a wife is out of the picture, then so is a family. No kids, no namesake, nothing like that will ever be something that this man would experience. And what all this means is he's going to live a life that's dependent on other people completely. Now, the world in which this man was born into was different from ours today. No help at all when it came to this man. He was alone, and that meant he, he couldn't live. He had to live depending on the generosity of other people. Today, we have certain acts uh, to help uh, those with disabilities, and, and uh, I'm glad we do that. And in that day, it didn't exist. He was completely on, on his own, left on, depending on other people. The only way to survive is to sit outside the temple and his friends would have to carry him there day after day after day after day. And I'm telling you, I can't imagine how hard this must have been for this man. He can't, he can't take himself anywhere. He can't provide for himself. He can't tend to himself. He can't defend himself. He's completely at the mercy of others, literally. He lives, he lives, he, he lives to see another day of somebody's kind. And from the text, we can draw the conclusion that he did have some people in his life, maybe friends who would take him to the temple gate. The text doesn't really give us a whole lot of information, but we just know that every day of this man's life, forever old he was, he was taken to the temple. He's living in poverty. He's hoping that his friends or his family would care enough to take him to the gate so he can be seen by all of God's people as they go into worship. And he's just hoping probably praying that somebody from God's people would have mercy on him and give him some money so he can face the next day. It's a pretty hopeless situation. It's a pretty depressing situation, but that's where he's at. Verse three, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Verse four, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I wanna stop for a minute, because that's a really important word, gaze. In fact, it's a word that Luke uses a couple different times. And just to give you a picture of how intentional Luke is using the word, in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, the first time we see this word, uh, Jesus is ascending to heaven and the disciples looked up into heaven. And it's the look of intent. It's an amazement. It's this very fixed gaze on something. That's how Luke pictures this in, in, uh, in Acts. And it's funny because I always laugh when I read the story about Jesus ascending into heaven when the angel comes and says, men of Galilee, what are you staring at? It seems like the silliest question. Jesus just floated up into the sky. <laughs> That's what we're staring at, right? It seems obvious. But they have this, this fixed look. And then we see the, the we see him use the same word again in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. I think it's verse 55. It says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, this is Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If you guys have, are witnessing a miracle, there's a certain way you're watching it. I mean, you're fixed. Anything can be going on around you and your eyes are fixed. They are gazing at something. And this is what Paul, or this is yeah, what Dr. Luke is trying to express here. He's being real intentional to show us not just Peter and John glancing at this guy as they move on, but looking straight at him. And it's more of an emotional involvement that we see happening here as Peter and John fix their eyes on this guy. Here's what I wanna know. Do you see the world that way? Do you see the needs of the world that way? We need to see the hurt. We need to feel the hurt because when we do that, then we can touch the hurt. And that's what's happening here. They saw the hurt. How many times have I driven down to Cincinnati? I know what street too. And there's a man that just sits there and he holds up a sign. How many times do we drive by somebody like that and it almost becomes just a part of our, our everyday? It's background because we're so used to it. Verse five, it says, and he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. 
Guy says, man, what are you gonna give me? Do you have money? What is it gonna be? In verse six, Peter said this, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now this verse always jumps out to me. I have no silver and gold. Somebody just say amen, because Peter and John were not prosperity gospel. (laughs) Do you hear me? Peter and John were not prosperity gospel. I have no silver, I have no gold. How about that? I wonder how many ministers today could say that. There's this story, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard it a couple times now in different sermons. It's a story about a humble monk walking with a Roman Catholic cardinal at, the time, at a time in the Middle Ages when the Roman Catholic Church was at its zenith of power, you know, prestige and wealth. And the cardinal at one point pointed out to this opulent surroundings and he says to the monk, we no longer have to say silver and gold I do not have. And the monk looked at him and replied, but neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So you can boast about your wealth, but where's the power? Peter said, I don't have silver and gold, but I'll give you what I do have. And and then he began to operate in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And then notice this, because this is important. It's important to look at what Peter does in verse 7. At verse 7 it says, And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now anybody, anybody can say to somebody, Hey, be healed. Be healed. Anybody can pray, and I recommend that you do. I, I want you to do. I want you to have bold faith, and if somebody's sick, I want you to be bold enough to lay your hands and, and pray that they get healed. Uh, and, and I've seen it a few times in, in public places. My wife has faith like this, you know. I've seen her pray for somebody on an airplane. I've seen her pray for somebody at a restaurant. In fact, I always tease Liz that we don't, uh, the reason I don't take you on dates to restaurants and I take you on dates to like Reds games or Bengals games or UC games is because if I take you to a restaurant, you're going to gaze at that server and all of a sudden you're going to be ministering and then we're not even having a meal because you're praying for like six different people in the restaurant. That's just Liz's gift. But, but I, I think you should pray for people. Take, take somebody who's unable to walk, who's never been able to walk, and, 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 and pray for them and have the faith to pray. I want you to do that. But I want, you to, I want you to see something. Peter, actually, he doesn't just pray. Man, he, takes, he does something that's so like Peter. It's such a Peter thing. He, after he's done praying, he takes this guy's hand and he, he raises him up or helps him up. He wants to see him, he wants to see him get walked. Now, you've got to think about this. Peter just took someone who is unable to walk, never has been able to walk, has no muscle strength at all, and he pulls that man up. (laughs) That's an act of faith. And why am I making note of this? Because whose faith is it? Whose faith is it? It's Peter's faith, right? Whose faith was it? Who had the faith? Peter wasn't the lame man. And I bring it up because in certain movements today in the church, in contemporary Christianity, we've got these uh, these movements like the, the word faith movement, and they make a big deal out of your faith right? Your faith. If only you had faith, you'd be healed. But you're not healed because you don't have the right kind or the right amount of faith. But if you did, if you can muster up that faith and speak the word, if you, if you had just had the faith, you would have been healed. And we're going to get into this. I'm jumping ahead. We're going to get into this in a little bit. But I think this, ver- this passage is so interesting because it's not the lame man's faith. It's Peter's faith. So 
And, and the amazing thing is he, didn't even, he wasn't even asking to be healed. He just wanted a handout. But Peter doesn't have a handout. But it's in the name of Jesus. And Peter, Peter does something, right? He had the faith to pull him up. So it's just, it's like, it reminds me of the story of the paralytic that was, was led down in the house. You know, some Galilean member. They couldn't get to Jesus because the house was so full of people. And so a few of his buddies, they took tiles off the roof. And they took the paralytic and they lowered him down by rope. You guys remember that story? And you know what it says? It says in seeing their faith. In seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. He didn't see his faith. The guy's, the guy's probably thinking, stop making a scene, don't do this. It was the faith of his friends. They wanted to see their friend get healed and they lower him down. Now, I want you to remember who wrote this book too, right? It's, it's Luke. It's, it's Dr. Luke. And you know that the Greek words here that Luke uses in this text are only words used by a medical doctor. Only used by a medical doctor in the first century, let me clarify. These words are found nowhere else in the New Testament. The word for foot, the word for ankle, the word for even jumped up is the literal, literal medical term for something that is out of socket going back into socket. So you have a medical doctor authenticating a medical miracle. It's not the power of positive thinking that's taking place here. It's not physical therapy that's taking place here. This is a miracle of creation because this man, his feet, his ankles, his bones had never worked right up till this point. His joints had never worked right. His muscles, which are totally uh, atrophied from, from never being used at all, suddenly grow and they're strong. And look at what verse 8 says. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9, and all these people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Talk about an amazing story. I want to talk about because usually believers, they're pulled into one or two directions when it comes to miracles. And I feel like I gotta stop and I gotta clarify and I need to talk about this. And, and this is why next week we're gonna even go deeper into this. But sometimes, this is the most powerful book ever. I mean, there's a reason when you come to New Heights on a Sunday, I don't really preach to you my, my thoughts and opinions. I try to keep it to the text because this is, this is God's word and it's spoken to you directly. It has the, the, the capability of changing and transforming your life. This is God's spoken word. And sometimes God's word in the hands of the wrong person can be really dangerous. I mean, you look at the history of the church. We have done some silly, foolish things all in the name of God, right? You uh, talk about the crusaders going and, and killing different people groups in all in the name of Jesus to take over the world and you know, we've, we've just done horrible things. When I was in a, a missionary overseas, I can't tell you how many people would use the Bible to try to teach me that, that God, God favors certain races over other races. Because, again, the, the Bible in the wrong hands can actually be dangerous. And so anybody who, who teaches from God's word, it just you, you, one day we're all going to face God. Those who teach God's word, man, we're going to be held accountable to it. There's a reason I, I, I don't take what I do lightly. I'm going to make sure that I, to the best of my ability, preach God's word to you. Not my opinion, not my philosophy, but God's word. And 
And here there's usually believers, like I said, they're pulled into one or two directions when it comes to miracles. Number one, there are a lot of those of us who are prone to want to see God do the miraculous and we see a miracle behind everything that happens. Okay, and then there's others of us who are skeptical about miracles or even cynical. In fact, I heard this definition for a a cynic and I thought, man, that's really good. One who has been wounded by hope. That was this, this pastor's definition of a cynic. One who has been wounded by hope. I can relate to that. Because there's been many times in my life where I've been wounded by hope. You know, I've, I've been honest with everybody and told the story about my dad who got diagnosed with a brain tumor, battled that for nine years, and then died of a brain tumor. The same guy that I watched over and over growing up in life lay his hands on people and pray for healing, and we would see, we would see a miracle. We would see healing. And then he himself never got that healing, and he died of a brain tumor after battling it for nine years. And I would say that I was probably one who had been wounded by hope. And I began to look at the text through my own lens of experience. We grow cynical for a lot of reasons, right? We, but mostly because we've been hurt. And I can't tell you how many people I've met in the church who, who want to go back to the text and believe the miraculous, but they've been hurt by phonies and fakes. Well, hey, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I've seen my fair share of phonies and fakes, <laughs> I've seen shams. I've seen scam artists. And, it's, and it puts doubt in our hearts because we grow weary. What's real, right? What's real? What, what, what is real and what's not? And so many ministries today propping up man instead of pointing to God. And I get weary of it. I get tired. I get sick of it when I hear another name, uh, somebody's ministries, pointing to, to man instead of pointing to God. So much about the individual and so little about God get tired of it. I grow weary. And sometimes I've told Liz, I just want to take it all and throw it out. It, it pushes me to that point where as a pastor and a leader who, who's charged by God to care and tend to flock, it makes me want to just pull out all of the miraculous and say, I, I, I don't even want to mess with it because the abuse is so damaging and, and it does so much bad to the church. I almost just want to throw it out at, the, at, at just the thought that we'll never at least have to go down that road. But I can't do that because it's all throughout the text. Right? It's all throughout the text. All of the New Testament is about the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm sick and tired of seeing these teachers point people to man instead of God. And we, we, it, what happens is we live in this bizarre conundrum, right? I love Wayne Grudem's definition of miracles. He says, a miracle biblically is a less common kind of God's activity in which he awakens people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. That's what miracles are supposed to do. It's not supposed to prop up some guy's ministry. It's supposed to bear witness and make sure that people know that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, Lord of lords. That's what it's supposed to do, right? But so many times we prop up man instead of God, and so many times we've got these thrill seekers that are chasing experiences, and if I can just get to this guy's event, then I'm going to experience it. So here's what I want to answer, because the question always obviously arises. Does New Heights Church believe in miracles? Absolutely we do. Absolutely we do, and here's why. Because the same spirit that was at work then is at work now. Right? And I want to say this, and listen carefully. Miracles function uh, not to point to themselves or to the person to whom God brings the miracle. you got to understand, the hand was Peter's, but the ministry belonged to the name of Jesus. 
Miracles exist to point to Jesus. If you're looking for a solid resting place for your faith, it's in him. Is when you encounter him, when you see his character and his beauty, that's when you really become convinced. Our faith does not rest on the water weight evidence for miracles. It rests on the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. So a miracle, they're, they're, they're only authentic when they're, when they're signposts to the reality of the kingdom. Now listen really careful. This miracle in chapter 3, it was definitely a signpost. Remember this audience, they're Orthodox Jews who knew the Old Testament. They're, they're going to pray. And what does it say in Isaiah 35, 6 about the Messiah to come? Isaiah chapter 35, 6 says this, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see, the, that audience, they, they knew that prophecy about the coming Messiah. You see, this was a signpost that authenticated the ministry of Jesus Christ. Do miracles still occur today in our world? Absolutely, yes. And let me tell you where I think they occur the most frequently, okay? In our prayer ministries, and I think when people are living on mission, I heard one pastor say on the mission field, but I I disagree with that. I think it's when people are living on mission. It's not that miracles happen overseas and miracles don't happen in America. I've heard it time and time again as a missionary, I'd always get this. I'd get questions at Sunday schools when I would go visit from church to church. Hey, Justin, can you tell me why you think miracles, why are they more spiritually hungry overseas? Or why is the miraculous happening overseas and it's not happening in America? I lived in both worlds. It's happening both places. Okay, it's not like they're, they're spiritually, they're, the depth of their spirituality is strong. It's, it's not like that. You're dealing with cultures and, and you're dealing with people groups that have different cultures and, and all of that comes into play. I want the American church to know, here your pastor, you guys are not less spiritual than people overseas. You don't have to jump on a plane to go experience the supernatural move of a God. You can experience it right here in America and it's happening right here in America, Okay. But I do say that it happens in our prayer ministries and when people are living on mission. So a lot of times, if, if people are living on mission overseas, because literally when I've lived in places where you give your life to Jesus, the next day you're ready to dig your own grave. Because that what, that's what it means to follow Jesus. So you're living on this dependency on, on the Holy Spirit to get you through day by day, right? Now, now why prayer ministries? Because it's where people get dependent on God, Right? That's where people cry out to God for the things that only God can do. And I believe that when we get humble and we get on our knees and we pray that God moves. I believe that if American churches would do this, we would see the move of God. If we just would get on our knees, humble ourselves and come before God. I say people who are living on mission because gospel is breaking through difficult places. And we see this prevalence of miracles. Now remember in our text at that time, they didn't have the entire New Testament. And so what the Holy Spirit was doing was drawing attention to Jesus. For all the people who are chasing miracles today, listen to me. They're chasing signs and wonders, basically saying, God, prove it to me. And God is saying, I have. I have. You have 66 books called the Bible. Be obedient to them. So we don't need to chase miracles. We just need to pursue Jesus. Do you hear me? Wayne Murray, pastor in Indianapolis, says this, if the goal is to be supernatural, you will end up in shipwreck. But if the goal is intimacy with Jesus, you will end up in the supernatural. 
So you want to see God's power in your life, submit to his word. Begin to fulfill his purpose. Begin to take the gospel with you wherever you go. You want to see God's power, get on your knees and pray and get busy doing God's mission. Because that's where the Holy Spirit is on the move, to bring attention to these signs that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. But don't miss the big idea, too, behind the miracles, right? They point us forward to the kind of restoration that Jesus is going to bring to the entire world. Jesus' miracles, they're not some, simply some magic show about how powerful he was. That was not the intention. If Jesus simply wanted to prove his power, he could have written his name in the sky. He could have lifted the temple up. He could have done a whole lot to show his power. He didn't do things like that. Every miracle that Jesus and the apostles did was an alleviation of suffering. They pointed to to Jesus' saving purpose. Right? I've heard it said, Jesus' miracles did not show off the naked fact of his power. They revealed the redemptive purpose of his power. That's what a miracle is. These miracles show us that God is no happier with the world uh, than you and I are. He didn't create the world with pain or blindness or disease or death. That all came through the corruption of sin. Pain and disease, they're not natural to God's original design. That was supposed to be foreign in God's design. These miracles point us to the world as God created it to be and, and, and wants it to be again. All right? Miracles are not a suspension of the natural order, but a return to the natural order. Jesus' healings are only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Now that's our greatest hope. Sickness and death, they're temporary, right? I love Joni Erickson Tata. I loved listening to her preach when I was growing up in the church as a kid. She was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident. And this is what Joni Erickson Tata says. At that great marriage supper of the Lamb, the first thing I think I'll do on resurrected legs is fall to my glorified knees and praise the God of resurrection and healing. And then I'll stand and dance before him with all my might. Now, do you want that future healing? Is that something you want? Don't you, don't you know deep down that you were made for that? To be in a world without brokenness and pain? And the only way to get there is you gotta repent towards Jesus because it's only in Jesus that the healing is found. He's the only one. And it's only for those who repent who one day get to go into that world where there's no pain, there's no sickness, there's no suffering. It's only those who have surrendered to him now. And, and I... I know I'm running out of time here. I got about five minutes. But this obviously, people ask, well, Pastor Justin, does does everyone receive healing? And I'm just gonna scratch the surface here because this is gonna be something we look at next week. But does everybody receive healing? Because a lot of false teaching that's permeating our church right now, leaving devastating effects. There's teaching going out. Everyone can be healed and you you need to have faith. And if you have enough faith, you can be healed which means if you're not healed, it's because you failed and you don't have enough faith. It's teachings like this that almost destroyed my family when my dad battled for nine years with brain tumor. Surely we weren't doing enough or he would have been healed. And it's a false teaching and and those who are teaching it are false teachers and they're teaching it because if it doesn't work, it's your fault, not mine. It's easy for... (laughs) for a false teacher to say that, right? If you don't get healed up here, well, it's not my fault. You just didn't have the right kind of faith. And I want you to believe that you can be healed because the Bible teaches it. 
I want you to pray for healing, but I want you to know that not every one of you will be, will be healed. I want you to pray for healing, but I want you to know that every one of you will not be healed. And I'm not God. I don't, I don't know who will and who will not be healed here on earth, but I do know that we are commanded to pray and to believe. And here's what I won't tell you. I will not tell you that God used to heal and he doesn't heal anymore, so don't get your hopes up. I won't tell you that. And I won't tell you that God has to heal you because he heals everyone. And if he doesn't heal you, it's your fault. I won't tell you that. You don't have enough faith. There's God and he's up in heaven. If you just, if you just had enough faith to move his hand, his hand then would rest upon you. And if hand, his hand rests upon you, it's because it doesn't rest upon you. It's because your faith is too weak. I have been in the room with dying people who are saying goodbye to their loved ones because their body has been destroyed by cancer and disease and sickness. And I've been in a group of pastors who have gone in to pray and I've had pastors say these kind of things. You need to get enough faith because if you get enough faith, you're going to be healed today. While she's crying because she realizes she's got to figure out what to do because she realizes that if God doesn't heal her, she's got kids she's leaving and these kids are going to need a mom and she's got all of that on her mind and here's this pastor coming in telling her she needs more faith. she doesn't have enough of a burden already. Let me tell you, we have examples from the Bible, from text, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Paul says this, I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Paul was traveling with a man and he leaves the man. Why? Because the man is sick. I think we all know that Paul had faith, right? <laughs> Paul's going to be somebody that if you don't know, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to the church, Paul's going to be somebody you meet in the book of Acts. He's one of the main characters. He's a part of a whole lot of healings that take place. But for whatever reason, this man didn't get healed, and I know it wasn't because Paul didn't have enough faith. So Paul had to leave him. Why? So he could be tended to. He's sick. How about Paul himself? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Nobody knows what that is. We've debated it for years. But a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Did Paul pray about it? Yeah, he sure did. That it should leave me. That's what Paul prayed. He wanted to be healed. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, look, I have an injury or an illness. I've asked Jesus to heal me. And here's what God says. Paul, you're going to be okay. Get tougher than your problem. Keep trucking. You're all right. If I wanted to heal you, I would. Keep trucking. We know that Paul had faith. We know Paul believed in healing. We know that Paul was used by God to bring healing to others. He himself never received the healing he wanted. According to Paul, it kept him from being conceited. I can understand that. Had to be humbling. Can you imagine a faith healer coming up here and praying for people and they're getting healed and then he's got to be put in his wheelchair and rolled back down? It would keep Paul humbling. Paul's get, people are getting healed by his handkerchief for crying out loud. Not a practice that we follow still. We'll get to that too. And here Paul can't get God to heal him. Sometimes God won't heal us for our good. Sometimes God won't heal us because he loves us. Sometimes God won't heal us because even though it might be good for our body, it may not be good for our soul. And that's what Paul says. He says, you know, if everything was great, I was always doing incredible. I never had any problems. I never had any issues. I might just become a really arrogant guy. And this really keeps me humble because it forces me to be dependent on the Lord and his grace. So, so no, not everybody will be healed in this life. 
But miracles remind us of our need for salvation. You see, the physical disease and the physical sickness of some here on earth point to the heart condition of all of humanity. Some people are physically blind, but Ephesians says we're all spiritually blind. The physical sickness of our bodies, they point to the inward sickness of our souls. And no, I don't mean that if you're physically sick that there's something specific God is punishing you for. We're gonna get into all this next week. What I'm saying is that physical sickness in general happens on earth because of the sickness of our souls. And the miracle is the message about salvation that Jesus can bring our souls. That's the miracle. The lame guy first asked for money, but Peter says, silver and gold, I don't have. In other words, what you want from me is good, but what I'm gonna give you is much better. It's much deeper. Instead of giving him money, he gave, or instead of giving him money, he gives him physical healing. And eventually in chapter four, this guy becomes a disciple of Jesus, which guess what? That's the greatest miracle of all. So when do we receive healing? Well, listen, and this isn't a cop-out. When will all of God's people receive healing? Here's what we do believe. All of God's people will receive healing The question is, when, when will this happen? In the kingdom of God, Jesus suffered and he died. He was buried. So God's people will suffer. We will die and we will be buried. And just as Jesus rose conquering sin and death, so Jesus's people will rise in victory over sin and death. We'll get a glorified, resurrected body. My dad's doing somersaults and cartwheels in heaven right now. You can read in 1 Corinthians 15, it details this. And this resurrected body will be as God intended. And the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem will be as God created. And there will be no more curse and no more sickness and no more sin and no more Satan and no more demons and no more death. Revelations 21.4 says that when that day comes, he, who's he, Jesus, and listen to this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Man, come on. No one will, will, will cry again. Never, not in heaven. Those will be the last tears we ever cry. That's the kingdom of God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death, death shall be what? Death shall be over. No more funerals, no more crying, no more prayer meetings, no more prayer chains. Right now we need it all, but one day it'll be over and we'll be fine with that. No, no more crying, no more pain. The former things have passed away. It won't be like this forever. And for the Christian, that is as close to hell as we get right here on earth. It's as close to hell as we will ever get. But it won't be like that forever. And, and, and honestly, the kingdom of God is a beautiful thing. And God's people will be there together, resurrected forever. forever. And, and just like this is as close to hell as we'll get for the non-Christian, this is as close to heaven as they'll get. That's pretty sobering, right? And I've gone way over. I have so much more to go over. It's so deep, but here's what I want to do. I want to close today. We were going to do communion after. I'm going to close out in prayer. I'm going to dismiss all those that have to go. But we as a church, we believe God's word. And God's word says that he heals today, both spiritually and physically. So sometimes God does heal. And and I've witnessed it my whole life. I've seen the miraculous move of God. I know we've got people in our church today who need healing. So what we're going to do is the worship team is going to do what they always do. They're going to close us out with songs. 
but I'm gonna have our prayer team, they're gonna come up to the front and I'm gonna give an altar call to all those who need healing, physical healing. I wanna call you up to the altar because we have prayer workers that wanna lay hands on you. The Bible talks about that, to lay hands. And it says to, to pray by faith and it says to even anoint with oil. We're gonna do all of that. We're gonna pray and believe that God can do the miraculous. We're gonna believe we're gonna see miracles. But I also wanna just shout out, if you're here, and you have never accepted Jesus, the first miracle you need is to be forgiven. That's it. The first miracle. And that's, that's the greatest, most wonderful miracle that you a sinner, me a sinner, don't deserve God's grace, will be granted God's grace and given the chance to live in eternity with God forever. That's the greatest miracle. So I'm going to open up these altars. I'm going to close out in prayer. If you've got to go, I understand uh, you are officially dismissed. Go be the church. But I want those who are sick to come up to the front and we want to pray with you. Father God, we come to you right now. Again, so thankful for your word, so thankful for what you're doing in our church and in the lives of everyone who calls New Heights Church their church. And Lord, I'm praying today that nobody who's sick would get up and walk out because they doubt that you, don't, you won't heal them. I pray that anybody who's battling illness will have the faith to come up today and pray for healing. And their faith rests in you, knowing that you are a sovereign God. Their faith rests in you, just like Paul who prayed over and over and over. And you kept telling him, Paul, you're gonna be okay. Paul's faith was in you. He was okay. I pray for that kind of faith in every single person in here today. We pray that you, you would move and touch the lives of everyone in here today, God. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.